Hebrews 12. Therefore, strengthen your, your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everybody and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This week I had an opportunity to meet one of our students for coffee on the campus of the University of Victoria, um, just to kind of check in, see how life and faith was going for them. And our conversation was wrapping up and it was still time for them to head for class. And so I walked with them across campus from the student center to their class that was on the other side of campus. And when I was doing my master's program at ACU, I was usually there in January, at like the very beginning of January, and at the like right tail end of July, beginning of August. And so the campus was always deserted. And so I forgot what the mad rush between classes looks like sometimes. And so, okay, yeah, sure, I'll walk with you to class. And then it's just like, boom, like I'm in the drain. I'm like in the pipe, you know, with everybody that's, that's running in between classes. And we're talking and moving in between and weaving in between people and doing all this stuff. And um, I, uh, you know, we arrive and say our goodbyes, and I'm left to trek back across to my car where the student center is. And my awareness was already a bit up, you know, just being in the middle of all the people and everything as I've described. But as I began my journey, I really kind of felt God's Spirit kind of tugging on me, kind of going, you know, be a, pay attention as you go. Not just pay attention that you don't bump into people, pay attention as you go. And so I did, and I made a real point to walk across the campus with the intention of seeing. And see, I did. Hundreds of students moving in various directions, moving to destinations, sitting on benches, standing and waiting together in such a close environment. I really tried to look at them and see them as I walked, and I noticed that almost none of them tried to look back at me. If they did, there was kind of this awkwardness and, and a quick glance away as if they had somehow, you know, been exposed or broken some cardinal rule of, of campus. I'm not sure. It was interesting. I don't, maybe they just thought I was a teacher or something. I'm not sure. Um, but it didn't matter. You know, some were talking with friends. Some had their attention buried on a smartphone, but most were just moving, just going silently, just kind of staring at the ground or just off into nothing. And as I, I walked and I watched, I kind of felt this tangible feeling growing inside of me, giving voice to what I was seeing, and it was as though the Spirit of God was whispering, do you see how thirsty they are? Do you see how thirsty they live? Thirsty for a lot of things. Thirsty to be noticed, but afraid to be seen. Thirsty to acquire knowledge or wisdom, but pressured by the task of doing so. Thirsty to experience life and see purpose, but fearful of the risk and the failure and the loneliness that sometimes comes with those things. Thirsty for answers, but afraid that there might not be any. These were all these impressions that start welling up in me as I'm walking. And by the time I got back to the university center, most of the rush of the passing period was over. And that's when I noticed the second thing that God put in my path, and it was a sandwich board, um, which may not seem like much in and of itself, but uh, there was a, it, was, it was a sandwich board that had a maintenance crew scrubbing graffiti off of it. And it wasn't a big thing in and of itself, but it was the fact that the board was advertising religious services on campus. And scrawled across it was a particularly crass vulgarity directed at Christians. 
And it's the sort of thing that I normally just ignore, or maybe I'd kind of give a frustrated shake of my head at and be like ignorant, uh, you know, and just go. But instead, just kind of where I was spiritually at the moment, my response was different. It was a very, very deep pity. It was a very, very deep compassion that welled up in me for whomever had felt moved to do that, whatever their reasons were. And I finished my walk to my car and I was reflecting and I was asking God for insight on these things that had come into my, you know, vision and, and just those two things working together reminded me of a quote that I had read recently by John Updike and, and he, he wrote this, it was in, a, it was in a, a work that he wrote called A Month of Sundays and he says, in general churches have borne from me the same relation to God that billboards do to Coca-Cola. They promote thirst without quenching it. We began this series on living generously. And if you remember, I went out and I asked random people around downtown. We showed that video clip of me going downtown and asking people what they thought it meant to live generously. And I reflected quite a bit on those responses even as we've been going through this series, especially the ones that troubled me. Um, and probably no response troubled me more than the young woman that I met in Centennial Square who said, you know, I really think it's, it's a dream. I don't think anybody can live generously without an ulterior motive behind it. Nobody lives generously just to live generously. It was kind of a pessimistic, kind of dark response, but I've thought about her words in church. You know what I've decided? She's right. She's right. We don't live generously to think that we could live generously with, with our speech, with our time, with our space, with our possessions, whatever it is that, that God gives us to be generous with, and to live that way for its own sake is not really being truthful with ourselves. Our generosity or our lack thereof will always be motivated by something else. The question is whether those motivations and the fact that we have ulterior motives to our generosity whether those are sinister things, whether those are destructive things, or whether those are life-giving motives. We will always be generous because something moves us to be generous. The question is, what moves us? Jesus knows all about motivations. In the Gospels, he often speaks about heart motivation as the critical thing the Father considers when he looks at us. Instead of pretending that we can live virtuously or generously without motivation, Jesus instead clearly calls out the good and the bad motivations for why we do what we do in order that we can take a sober look at our motivations. For Jesus, the ulterior motive of why we do anything as disciples is that we are, by grace, children of the living God. And through that grace, we are participants in establishing and revealing the kingdom of heaven on this earth. That is our ulterior motive. And it's a good one. It's a good one. It's when it gets confused. It's when it gets dampened. It's when it gets twisted. That's when we have problems. But we shouldn't deny, we shouldn't try to be generous for generous sake. To do that is to lie to ourselves. That is not why we are generous. We are generous because we are motivated by a generous God. And we're closing out the series this week with a look at being generous with grace, which may seem, may seem like a very, very nebulous way to end this, but I, I think it's actually a very, very specific way to end this. 
While the conversation about generous living started with having generous expectations of what God can do with us, it ends here. The understanding that grace is actually the foundational thing that all of our generosity flows out of. It's the building block of the generous life. It is the fuel for living out the pattern of Jesus Christ. And I think this may be a very, very different idea of grace than the one that I grew up with. Maybe it is for you too. You've probably heard me in various circumstances or situations, even in sermons, quote some shape or form or fashion of Dallas Willard's words where he says, it is not the sinner who burns a lot of grace, you must understand. It is the saint that burns a lot of grace. And I love that statement because in that statement, he opens up a completely new understanding for us, not just of what grace is, but what the trajectory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. I agree with everything that we talked about this morning in our children's church. The most basic foundation of our understanding of grace is tied to forgiveness. We acknowledge that we need grace to overcome sin in our lives. We confess that, and the grace is then God showing mercy through the blood of Christ and putting his spirit within us to affect repentance and transformation. That is the heart and foundation of grace. It is all true. It is all gospel. But I think that's where most of us stop with our understanding of grace and the gospel. That we are the end point of the grace that God pours out. He delivers it to us. This great, renewable, inexhaustible resource of mercy and transformation. We soak it all up knowing that it will never run out for us even as we're mindful of Paul's words that say, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Heck no. Okay, we, we use that as our caveat, right? We're trying to get better. But, but the grace primarily exists for us. And I want to challenge you with this today, church, children of God. The grace that God pours out into your life, that mercy, that empowerment, that forgiveness, that transformation, it does not primarily exist for your benefit. That may be kind of shocking to you. Put your rocks down. Okay, not done yet. I want you to consider the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. We've heard this in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. Luke gives it a critical He gives this critical, deeper insight into both why we receive the mercy of God's grace and how grace functions in the life of the disciple. Read with me in Luke 6, starting in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop them from taking your tunic as well. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you just love those who love you, what credit is to you? Even even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners do that as well. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. No, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High God because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Did you catch that? Did you catch the motivation behind why we do this? For Jesus, it is a no-brainer that we would take the grace of God that he showers on us and spread it around God's family. Okay? That's not actually being a disciple. Anybody can do that. I mean, maybe the sermon... Maybe the sermon should just then there, our lack of ability to extend grace within the family of God. That might be enough. But that's not even the key, Jesus says. The reason that we have been given this inexhaustible resource of grace in our lives as Christians is to pour it out on those who would name themselves our enemies. who would curse us verbally, harm us physically, ostracize us socially, take away our earthly securities, stifle us economically, and generally wish the worst on us if they've got the opportunity. That is why we have been given the grace of God, to lavish it out on those who would name themselves our enemies. That's outrageous. And it's foolish. And it makes no sense. And it is totally okay to say that. Why would Jesus give me such a difficult and seemingly self-destructive command? Why would he do that? He provides this answer. Because then you will be children of the most high God because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. As Philip Yancey puts it, the more we love the more, and the more unlikely the people are that we love, the more we start to resemble God. After all, he loves ornery and rebellious creatures like me, like you, like us. There's a circular pattern at work here. And it won't make any sense if my understanding of grace and salvation has an endpoint at me. If the circle just stops there, I haven't actually let grace accomplish all that grace desires to accomplish in my life. I fear that we have placed sometimes such a high priority on our personal salvation and our relationship with Christ, which is vital and is true, and we die without it. we've placed such a high priority on that that we assume that this is the message of the gospel of grace, that Jesus just wants to save you and be your personal Savior and Lord. That is true, but it is secondary because the main reason that God has injected his grace into the reality of our lives is to establish the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is bigger than you. And the kingdom of heaven is bigger than me. You know what Jesus really wants to do? He wants to save everybody. 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 
He wants to make his kingdom of salvation real and full throughout our entire universe and our whole existence. And grace is the fuel that is converting my present reality into his eternal reality. Every day, every thought, every word, every act. Do we see grace that way? Saving you is just one itty-bitty piece of that, right? It's a vital piece, but it's just one piece. And if all we do is stay on that piece, we are missing the fullness of the gospel. His saving by his grace is not merely to save us. And as good as our gratitude and praise is, it's not even so you and I can say thank you for filling the deep thirst within me with your grace, Jesus. Yes, he desires that. And our lives should be praise, and our lives should be an outpouring, but the reason that God has poured out the incomparable riches of his grace on us through Christ is because his grace is a charis. Remember last week, charis, the gift that we receive that is also a gift that we are able to give. It is a gift received. It is a gift to be given It is so that gratitude and the joy that we now possess, that new life that we now claim as his children, that quenched thirst for the living water is going to well up out of us in an overflow. That we actually become dynamic temples of God's spirit moving around and through and out of our lives and dispensing grace all over the place wherever we go. That's actually the design. That's actually why grace doesn't dry up in your life is so that it will pour over out of you. If I'm just a consumer of grace, I'm going to spend my time preoccupied with whether I'm getting enough to satisfy me or not rather than trusting that his love will never fail. His mercy will be new and full for me every day. If I'm just a consumer of grace, grace only exists for me when I'm in need. Grace only exists for me when I'm failing. That's when I tap into it. But if I am a dispenser of grace, if I am a vessel of grace, if I am the the image that, that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, it says we have this great riches in this broken clay vessel so that it can just pour out of us. We have all of these cracks and these holes and these, you know, damaged areas so that the, as God pours the grace into us, it just flows out wherever it is we are. If that's the image of my life, if that is what I hold on to as the purpose of God investing his grace into my life continually, ah. If I'm a dispenser of grace, my goal is not to store it up. It's to pour it out. It's not to save it up to cover my weakness or balance out my faults. It is to power my ability now by the Spirit to mirror my Savior and love the way that he loves. That is why grace exists in my life right now. That is why it has been given to me. Church, we will never be generous people unless we are convicted of the idea that Jesus died for us so we can live for others as well as for him. 
If the gospel of grace in our lives ends with personal salvation and it doesn't extend to establishing the kingdom of heaven and the world around us, it is not really the gospel of grace in its fullness. In our reading this morning in Hebrews 12, the preacher has spent the last 11 chapters revealing those incomparable riches to his listeners. And then he opens with those lines that we know so well. Therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, let's throw off the burdens, let's throw off the entangling sin, and let's run with fortitude and perseverance the race marked out for us. And when I read this, I always think of Olympic stadiums filled to the brim with spectators coming to their feet and roaring with applause as sleek, muscular, probably Central African marathoners cruise with superhuman speed and grace around the track like it's nothing. On the home stretch to the finish line, barely breaking a sweat. And I don't know if you've ever witnessed a professional marathon before. I've seen coverage of the Boston Marathon a few times, and most of their coverage is, as you would expect, from the front of the race, where the competition for the best time and the skill of the runner is paramount. That is not the picture that the preacher paints in Hebrews. It becomes fairly apparent that this view is from the back of the race where runners are ordinary folks who have a few more years under the belt and a few more pounds over the belt, (laughs) like me. I have always been a back-of-the-pack runner, as you can probably tell. Whether it was fun runs, by the way, I believe that is one of the most ironic names in the English language. (laughs) just going to say that right now. I used to do them with my dad as a kid, Never understood why they were called fun runs. Okay? Conditioning laps during football in high school. You would never catch me with the front guys. I was pounding ground in the back. Okay? I was doing it, but I was in the back. And you know what? There's a completely different goal in the back than there is in the front. Okay? Right? The front is for competition. The back is finishing. The back is getting done. But if you can get over getting done, you realize that there's another goal in the back, and that's making sure we all get done. Everybody gets done. That's why when your buddy is dry heaving, you stop with them, and you pat their back, and then you start throwing your shoulder around them, arm around their shoulder, and you help kind of keep them walking, jogging, whatever this thing is, stumbling forward while they're still doing it, because you know that probably around the next lap, you're going to be doing the same thing, and you're going to need them to do that for you, because otherwise you're going to be on the grass by yourself looking dumb. So you run with compassion and you slow down for your buddy and you share your water and you pick them up when they're stumbling and you make it together. You run not with grace within but with graceful attention without because you're all puffing for the finish line together. That is the heart of the identity and the path of the Christian. See to it that no one misses the grace of our God, says the preacher. 
The grace that is given to us through Jesus to strengthen our feeble arms, to shore up our weak knees, to make our path straight is given that all those around us who have been hobbled by sin will not continue that way. Instead of being disabled, we extend that same grace that throws off their bonds, untangles them from their sin, heals and sets them free so that they can stumble along with us toward the finish line so that we can get there. No one deserves to miss out on the grace of our God. And the challenge is that sounds really, really good in a sermon. But what happens when you try to work it out? I remember hearing a story about a United States Army chaplain whose name is Thomas Bruce. Shortly before mobilizing for a year of duty in Iraq, was convicted by Jesus' words and decided to take them seriously. The challenge to love his enemy and pray for him. And so he started a website called Adopt a Terrorist for Prayer. I am not making this up. ATFP.org. Go online and find it. It is an ironic thing because it is actually the same acronym, a very, very ironic echo of the United States Defense Department's own website called Anti-Terrorism Force Protection. If you do .gov instead of .org, you get a completely different website. Okay? And on it, he posts the names and faces of the most wanted lists of the FBI and the Defense Department and Interpol for terrorism. And he asks people to pledge to adopt one and pray daily for them. And I'm not sure whether he's come under more criticism for, from Christians or from non-Christians. But while there are many detractors, there are also thousands of folks who are praying daily for people who are actively purposing harm for the Western world. And I go, man, that's cool. And when he gets criticized by Christians, Bruce has said one of his favorite responses is to ask them to contemplate this question. How do we know that Saul would have become the Apostle Paul had Stephen, while the rocks were flying at his head, not been praying, Lord, don't hold it against him? How do we know? To assume it would have just happened is to assume that Stephen's prayer meant nothing. That it was just like window dressing that it was just the right thing to say to make him look holy while he was dying. Give me a break. Give me a break. I don't say things to make me look better when rocks are flying at my head and killing me. I say what's really in my heart. Okay? And let's be honest. If that was happening, probably what's going to well up out of my heart is you're a jerk. Something to that effect. Or why me? Or seriously? I was just preaching. That's all I was doing. It's welling up out of my heart. Probably not, say. Lord, please don't hold this sin against them. If we don't, if we don't see a connection there, then it's either because we, we, we haven't thought about it very well or, or we believe that the prayer of a righteous person is not powerful and effective. I don't know which it is. I hope it's the first one. I hope it's the first one. I hope it's just that we haven't thought about it much. I think about the recent global attacks that we've been experiencing by ISIS around the world and the Syrian refugee crisis and the reactions that are coming from all 
across the world. And it just leaves me with a question. I don't, I don't, I don't have a platform either way. Like, I, like, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's, I think it's foolish to try and like throw one of these things in at the end of a sermon when you've been, you know, talking about big heady things, and then you go, and so that means to do this. Instead, I think it's better to throw out a question. What does it mean? What does it look like to be generous with our grace? in times like these. What does it look like? What is the image that comes to your mind and your heart when you think of the generous grace of God and then ask yourself, what does it look like for me to mirror the generous grace that he had for me while we were still sinners, while we were adversaries, while we were by nature enemies of God, he poured out his incomparable riches of grace on us. We're moving into a time of Advent. We start it next week. I know it's all sunny outside and green, and you're like, really? Shouldn't there be snow? You know, not praying for anything specific, but, you know, it'd be fun. Uh, But we're moving into Advent next week. We're moving into this time of anticipating where the riches of the grace of God hit their apex point when the invisible God became visible and moved into our neighborhood. And what does it mean for us to live generously with our grace in times like these? I do know that terrorism is about generating irrational fear. And I do know that there's an apostle that at one point wanted to call fire down on an entire city that didn't want to listen to Jesus, who later, when he actually got a clue, said, no, 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 actually, actually it is love that drives out fear. I think when we are generous with our grace, we are willing to let love move us past fear, move us past being offended, move us past the prejudice that refuses to give people the benefit of the doubt, move us past being too comfortable to invest our expectations or our time or our space or our speech or our possessions or our priorities to somebody else. To move past our own short-sightedness and our own reluctance, a reluctance that I feel all the time to forgive, to love, to be like my Savior. To learn how to push past that. It's a big step to take, but it doesn't just start with something huge like terrorism. How much more does God desire to let these things well up in our daily interactions with those around us? Because as goes the small things in our life with faith, so will go the big things as well. When the little interactions I invest in become cross-shaped and they become grace-driven, I will be more and more ready to lavishly dispense God's grace in times where the kingdom needs to manifest in leaps and bounds. See, the best part is, is God is the one who gets to choose the big time, not me. Who knows, that little interaction of grace that you engage in may be the most important kingdom work you ever do in your life. You don't know. So don't let any opportunity pass you by. Don't let anybody miss out on the grace of God. Let's pray.
Lord, help me to see others not as my enemies, not as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people like me. Help us to do that, Lord. Moreover, help us not to assume that the grace that you so freely pour out exists for us alone. Give us the courage, give us the compassion to stretch ourselves out, to offer the overflow of your grace, that living water that alone quenches the deep thirst of humanity. Lord, teach us how best to present your living water to those around us, how to be generous with this incomparably rich gift of grace that you have placed in our hearts by your spirit. Thank you for your son who has given us the riches of the kingdom, who became poor for our sake so that we might become rich in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.